Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. I can't tell you how excited I am to introduce you to Dr. Adia Gooden, my guest on today's show. I first met Dr. Adia when she was a postdoc at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. I was teaching my undergraduate Marriage 101 course, and I asked her to give a guest lecture about a topic that I think we don't talk nearly enough about, intercultural intimate relationships. I tell you what, my students loved her warmth and her wisdom and her strategic use of Jackson and April clips from Grey's Anatomy. She and I have kept in touch over the years, and I relish every chance that we have to collaborate. Dr. Adia formerly served as the director of the clinic and community programs at the Family Institute at Northwestern University and as a staff psychologist and the coordinator for multicultural outreach and support at the University of Chicago Student Counseling Service. Her work centers on the mission of building unconditional self-worth, a practice that all of us could implement more of in our day-to-day lives. In addition to her work as a clinical psychologist and a speaker, Dr. Adia also holds workshops for clinicians on providing psychotherapy for Black women and cultural competence. I am grateful to have her by my side as we tackle a nuanced and important listener question about love across cultural difference. This topic is relevant to more and more of us as cross-cultural intimate partnerships become increasingly common. From racial and ethnic differences to religious and political difference, Each cross-cultural relationship poses its own unique set of challenges. These partnerships also have the potential to become exceptionally beautiful sites of transformation, understanding, and healing. In a society that so often pushes us toward division and polarization, cross-cultural relationships have the potential to send positive reverberations through families, communities, and beyond. And the first step is to name and honor the difference. In this episode, we give this listener tools for how to approach the topic with her partner and how to determine whether a bridge can be formed between them. 
Dr. Adia and I really dig deep in this conversation, and I hope you will find it as illuminating as I did. Dr. Adia, thank you so much for being here today. So happy to be here with you. I'm honored. (laughs) Okay, so on Reimagining Love, we start from the place that we get to be whole as we are and forever works in progress. And so we start every episode with this relational self-awareness question. I'm so excited to ask this question to you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. The question is, what is a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you? The thing that comes to mind is really fully accepting my partner. I just got married in July of 2021. And we've been together for just a little bit over three years total. It's interesting for me as a therapist to think about sort of the acceptance that I offer to my clients in therapy and the ease with which I'm able to do that and how it feels different to do it with a partner, right? With somebody that I'm committing my life to and we're affiliated and there's reflections on each other. And so I think what I'm practicing and learning to do more and more is accept him fully. And he's a wonderful person. (laughs) That's why I married him. (laughs) And we're different people, right? He does things differently. He thinks about things differently. And I'm 36. So I've lived with my way of thinking and my way of doing things for a long time. And so I think just learning to accept and see the benefits of partnering with somebody who's different and partnering with somebody who has different ideas and different ways of going about things is probably my biggest growth edge. And I think it's pushing me to go into sort of deeper levels of self-acceptance as well, practice deeper levels of acceptance all around and work on practicing unconditional love, which I think is really a practice. I love so much how you are saying that. And don't you feel like it's the people that are closest to us, our parents, our partners, I know with myself, with our kids, when the relationship is so close, it can feel kind of shocking and confusing. Like, but why would you do it that way when I do it this way? And aren't we sort of, no, we're not the same. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Like, but this is the way you're supposed to do it. It's like, well, that's one way to do it that works for me and maybe not the way that my partner chooses or wants to do it. And so, yeah, it's been a good journey. And I tell you, I mean, you are in the newlywed stage of marriage and Todd and I just had our 23 year wedding anniversary. And I think the acceptance piece is still a work in progress. I still am invited to accept Todd and his differences and to remember like that double edged sword aspect of those differences. Yeah, I usually talk about it as like the flip side, like Jason is a planner, right? So he will plan things months and months in advance. And I love it because I'm a planner too, but he's even more a planner than me. So there's times when I'm like, we don't have to plan it yet. (laughs) We can just, (laughs) we we don't have to worry about it yet. But it's like, I love the planning. And then sometimes I'm like, hey, can we relax? But those things come together. Yes. And as you say that, it reminds me that even if on the grand spectrum of planner to not planner, both you and Jason would fall towards the planner end of the spectrum. But if there's even just one degree of difference between the two of you, that one degree can become a point of contention or a point of conflict or a point of confusion or frustration, right? So even though 
put you guys with different people and it would be a huge difference. You are relatively similar, but relatively similar is not identical. Exactly. It's sort of like the little pebble in your shoe on mile one of the walk or the run. It feels like nothing. (laughs) As you go along, you're like, this is a big thing. And I think usually early on, you're looking for similarities. You're looking for how you're the same and you're focused on that. And then as you begin to build a life with someone else and really live and make decisions together, some of those differences really emerge more strongly. That's right. Okay. So in talking about your work to accept Jason, one of the things you said is that as you work on the practice of accepting Jason for the person that he is, what it does is it flips and it takes you deeper into your own self-acceptance. So there is that like recursive, the more I accept you, the more I'm invited to accept me. And that really ties, I think, to the heart of your work is you are passionate about helping people develop what you call unconditional worthiness. Yeah. And it does tie in, right? I think a big piece of self-worth work is accepting ourselves as we are, for who we are, not feeling like we have to change or be different in order to be worthy. And one of the things that I learn in partnership is, and I think as I keep living, is that we can have a certain level of acceptance and it feels really good. And then something changes in our lives. Like, Maybe we leave a job or maybe we change a role or maybe we have a life transition and then we have to start practicing that acceptance again and that worthiness work at a different level because we're sort of in a different role or identity or some parts of ourselves that we were like, oh, I feel really good about this have shifted or changed and so we have to make sense of that. And I certainly think being partnered with someone and seeing that this other person, it's like, oh, yeah, there are different ways of doing things. There are different ways of being that are all wonderful and all worthy. And I can also offer that acceptance to myself. Beautiful. It's just a reminder that the work is never done because even as you were saying, there's a developmental piece of it. It's not like you get to this fixed finish line, like, yay, I am 100% self-worth, like wipe my hands of that, move on to the next project because the context changes and you're invited into a new experience, a new life stage, as you said, a new job, a new relationship, and here it comes again. So I love that you are passionate about giving people tools because then you come back to your tools, right? You open up your toolbox. What's in there? What do I use? What do I lean on? What do I turn towards? Exactly. I really think of it as, helping people shift their way of being with themselves. And I think that relates a lot to your work and relational self-awareness, right? But how do you be with yourself when you are having a hard time, when you're having a wonderful time in life, when you're struggling, when you're confused, how are you showing up for and with yourself? And those are the practices and the tools that I offer people on their self-worth journeys that they can always return to. It's not like, oh, I reached a finish line. I don't need these tools anymore. I feel pretty grounded in my worthiness. And I still use those tools because different challenges and things come up for me. And so I return to self-compassion. I return to self-forgiveness. I return to all of these things because it is my way of being with myself. At the end of this episode, we are going to talk a lot about how people can keep learning from you because I adore what you teach and I value how you teach it. And our listeners are going to be eager to dive more deeply into the world of work that you are building. 
We've been talking a bit about difference, right? Like sort of personality differences or temperamental differences in intimate partnership. But our conversation today now is going to move towards an exploration of cultural differences when intimate partners come together across a significant cultural difference. And we've got a listener question that we will get to in just a moment. But I wanted to tee us up a bit by like laying out the landscape. And I want to share a little bit of data And this is data about kind of how common intercultural intimate partnerships are nowadays, more so than ever. So the Pew Research Center, which is a place I often turn to when I want that sociological snapshot of what's happening in marriages, usually their research is about marriages. In 2015, they found that 17% of all newlyweds in the U.S. had a spouse of a different race or an ethnicity. And this was a fivefold increase from 1967, when only 3% of newlyweds were married across a racial or ethnic difference, which in the U.S. context makes total sense because it wasn't until, of course, Loving versus Virginia in 1967, when the U.S. Supreme Court finally struck down at the federal level all of the remaining anti-miscegenation laws that were still on the book. So it makes sense that we are relatively new in this chapter of accepting, integrating, valuing love that happens across racial difference. And then when we look at religious difference, those have also increased quite a bit. Before 1960, about 20% of couples married across a religious difference, and today it's almost 40% are married across a religious difference. Those are two findings, but it's also worth noting, A, that many relationships happen across cultural difference because many people have multiple cultures living inside of them, right? They are themselves the product of a relationship that bridged cultural difference. And it's worth saying that those are just two, right, race and religion. And there are all kinds of differences, socioeconomic differences and differences around gender expression. So there are lots and lots of cultural differences that we come together across. But tell me, okay, so thoughts so far on those little sociological snapshots. Yeah, I think it's something that probably we're not talking about enough. How do you navigate this? Which is why the listener question that we're going to talk about today is so helpful because people tend to maybe get into a, we're the same. It's really not different, right? It's sort of ignoring differences. If you think about our larger society, we tend to be in a emphasizing differences and sort of polarization. Like the people at the extremes are the ones who are speaking the loudest and we hear from most. And so then we miss all the nuance and the commonalities in the middle. And so I think providing couples with tools and things to think about and questions to ask themselves and each other as they navigate these differences is really important. Absolutely. That's sort of like the sociological snapshot. And then what we're going to get into is like the psychology of cultural difference. And as you're saying, like, because we don't talk about it enough, it means that couples go into partnership without tools and language and frameworks and perhaps fear that if we name this difference, it might pull us apart. But you and I know for sure as therapists, that which doesn't get named still has the power to wreak havoc. In fact, that which doesn't get named has even more power to wreak havoc. Yeah, definitely. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor 
to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they are not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. The other finding I wanted to share is, again, from Pew, and it's about, in 2015, they surveyed Americans to ask them how important each of these seven factors was to marital success. And so what they found is that shared religious beliefs scored fifth out of these seven factors. Okay. I'm going to share these seven factors and like do a little like a little analysis inside your own mind of how much do each of these factors matter to you. But the way that the research fell out was that people said the number one most important factor was having shared interests. Mm. Two was having a satisfying sex life. Three was sharing household chores. Four was having adequate income. Five was having shared religious beliefs. Six was having children. And then the seventh most important factor was agreeing on politics. What stood out to me was this was data from 2015. Mm. And I wonder. (laughs) Yeah, I think the politics might have gone up a little bit. Bumped up just a smidge. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anything you would note about that list or those factors? Does it surprise you that people were listing shared religious beliefs as fifth out of seven? No, I think as we're in a world where more and more people are moving away from organized religion, many people are moving away from sort of strict adherence to religion. I think that is not surprising. That wouldn't be as highly ranked. We maybe don't have a great replacement or label for shared values. Historically, shared religion was like shared values. Like that was often what that meant. And now I think it makes sense that couples are like, we want to be able to do things together and enjoy things together and be able to spend time together. And I wonder if that feels more important because religious practices are often not at the center of many people's lives in the same ways that it was a few decades ago. Yeah, that shift, what I oftentimes refer to as the shift from like role to role relationships Mm. into what most of us are wanting, which is soul to soul relationships, right? Really having that sense that you see me, you get me, you feel me, you value me, and that our relationship is a container or a space in which I can continue to evolve and in which I can celebrate you continuing to evolve. So that makes sense what you're saying, that religious beliefs would maybe be more a reflection of that role-to-role model of where I need somebody who checks these boxes and fits in well with my family system and looks and feels familiar to me and aligned with me on these more global things. Yeah, I think that makes sense, especially since most religions define the role of spouses, right? Like this is what in a heterosexual couple, this is what a husband's supposed to do. This is what a wife is supposed to do. And there's often religious texts about these roles. And so if you're in a role to role marriage, as you're talking about the religious grounding could then create structure around what your roles are, how the relationship is going to work, and then a community to support that. But then 
I agree with you. If you're in more of the soul to soul, it's going to matter maybe a little bit less. Like what do these religious structures think we should be doing? And I think more people are saying, what kind of marriage do we want to have? What kind of relationship do we want to have? And they may pull things from their faith, but that's not the whole basis of their relationship. That's right. It is, as you were saying, it's about a set of shared values. That's why I oftentimes am helping couples create a mission statement or look at a a set of values. Like I have this values card sort that I love to use as part of my e-course where you really are looking at like, what are my values? What are your values? Like, how do we even name and operationalize? What does this relationship stand for? What is it about? What is it rooted in? You're right. In a way that if a religious text is not going to give that to us, then we get to, we have to, we're challenged to, we're invited to come up with it ourselves. Yeah. And I think it's so important because often our conversations about values come from religion, but in the absence of that, it is important to have a conversation, to ask ourselves the question of what is important to us? What do we believe is true? How do we find common ground? How do we figure out the values for our family on our own? And there is this opportunity and also it can feel hard without the structure that religion can sometimes provide. You ready for our question? I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. So our listener question is from Ashlyn, who lives in Charlotte. She writes, I am wondering about your thoughts on opposites attract That perfectly defines my current relationship. While there are positives to it, one of my concerns is with our religious beliefs. So I'm just wondering what your opinions or thoughts are on making a relationship work if you have different beliefs, especially religious beliefs, or if this is even a possibility. Mm. So Dr. Adia, I'm going to have you start wherever you want to start. Like, What stands out to you about this question? Related to what we've been talking about, I feel like there's this really wonderful opportunity to have thoughtful and intentional conversations about beliefs that often people who have the same religious beliefs or same religious background might not have because on the surface, it looks like you believe the same thing or at a high level, you believe the same thing. But we know that that's really not always true because there's so many different beliefs in any given faith. And there's this opportunity to have this conversation about what do you believe in? Why is your faith or your religion so important? What does it provide to you? How does that connect to what I believe and why I believe it and why my faith is so important? And to find places of shared connection around less about like the specifics of like, you believe that this is going to get you into heaven and you believe that you have to say this type of prayer and more about like, what function and role your religious faith and practices serve in your life? And how does that maybe reflect shared values? And what are the values that you're taking from each of your faiths that are shared, right? Often religious traditions have similar values, right? In terms of how you treat people, how you practice gratitude. There's a lot of things that are shared. And again, we can get caught up in focusing on the differences instead of the similarities, I think where it can be challenging is if you adhere to religious dogma that says that people who do not believe in this specific faith are bad, are wrong, are going to hell. Those types of beliefs, if you follow those beliefs, it's going to set up an inherent conflict. If you are then maybe trying to convince your partner to believe what you believe or change what you believe or feeling like 
falling in love with someone who doesn't follow this guideline of like, this is how you are a good person, it might shake up your faith. So I think those are the spaces where it becomes more complicated. And then I also think once you get family involved, that's often a space where it feels more complicated because parents and family members often want you to partner with somebody who has the same tradition and may have their own ideas, especially if similar to what you were saying earlier, Alexandra, if they're from the role to role model of marriage and partnership, and you're trying to do something different, that is also where there can be more conflict and challenge and sort of negotiating with other people and how that interfaces with your relationship. Oh my gosh, you have given us so much good stuff to work with. I want to go back to one of the first points you made about one of the really beautiful things that can happen when two people partner across religious difference is that it gives you a chance, like in that contrast, is a chance to kind of see yourself more deeply. Mm. If we are both Jewish, we maybe bypass or assume a set of stories and narratives and beliefs that because we're both Jewish, so it doesn't need to be verbalized. But if there's a difference, if I'm Jewish and you're Muslim, in that space of difference, I get to, I have to clarify, why am I this way? What does it mean to me? As you said, what is the space? How does it live inside of me? How am I defined by it? I remember years ago being the faculty sponsor for an undergraduate student's honors thesis. And she interviewed Christian college students who had dated Muslim students and who had dated Jewish students. And one of her main findings was that very one, which was like in dating somebody of a different faith, it was a beautiful opportunity for me to learn more about me. And not that we ought to be (laughs) narcissistic (laughs) or loving people so that we can learn more about ourselves. But that is a beautiful chance to kind of have that mirroring of understanding more like what does it mean and why is it? And that hopefully in those conversations, bridges are built rather than walls put up. But I think the point you made, I think, is a very clear place to put a line of if my faith is dogmatic and that works for me and I carry a set of beliefs where the other is bad, wrong, different, then right, it's going to torture me. It's going to torture my partner. It is going to be a source of pain resentment and dissonance for both of us, actually. And it's going to be this like power struggle. So I think that's a really good, clear check-in that you're inviting people into. Yeah. And I think that's the painful thing. And I think one of the things that people may find is that as they ask the questions, why do I believe this? Or why does this provide me comfort, safety, all of these things that they may start to question things that maybe they did believe before, maybe before they did believe this is the way, this is how you be a good person. This is how you get to heaven or whatever it is. And now they are challenging that because they're like, well, that isn't what about my faith is comforting to me or important to me. It's these other pieces or these other practices that really is important. So maybe I am willing to sort of release this belief that I adopted because I was supposed to and didn't really question, but now this is making me question. So I think really being willing to live in the space of nuance and the space of we're figuring this out, like not needing to have a, this is the right way, or this is how we're going to work it out. And this is what we're going to do. And right. But like a curiosity of like, huh, like, what am I going to learn about myself? What am I going to learn about you? How am I going to question my faith in maybe ways that are helpful and maybe even deepen my faith that I might not have before. 
so often the faith practices or the religious identity that we identify with, it's an inheritance from our family, right? It's the way we were brought up. It's our family of origin. And so, so much of what falling in love does is it invites us to revisit, okay, so why do I think that way? Where does it come from? Who does it serve? And around those religious beliefs, I know that like when I'm sitting with college and thinking of one college student in particular, where I had this beautiful conversation with her and she had grown up in a very religiously conservative home, arrived on a college campus and just felt like, oh my gosh, like there is so much more nuance than what I was exposed to. I now am wanting to explore issues of gender and social justice and intersectionality that kind of challenge and confront and make more complicated my religious beliefs. And I remember we were like working with this image of like, okay, so her religion was her home and it was a beautiful home for X number of years. And could she renovate the home? Could she add a second story and some skylights and some extra rooms rather than like destroying the home? Like rather than just burning it to the ground, can it be expanded? Because I think that's like so often like that sense of duty and loyalty to the people who raised us and a desire to be respectful and to have that connection to lineage. It's really hard to hold the tension between I love the people who raise me I respect them. I feel a sense of duty to them. And I really want and need to head in a different direction. That's not easy. Yeah. It also makes me think about the loss that people can feel. Like if you're moving away from a, this is my house. I feel safe. I feel secure. I know where the walls are. I know what to expect. I know what the rules are. That even in the expansion, which can come with so much growth and a deepening and all of these opportunities, there can also be a loss of that safety, security, that sureness that you might have had. And I think leaving room for that too, right? Like knowing that growing with a partner who is of a different faith tradition, how that might challenge your faith or your beliefs or guide you to think about things differently, that you may also feel a sense of loss, right? You may feel like, wow. I miss the safety and security and surety that I had before. And that's just part of it. There's always sort of loss involved in any transition and anything, even if it's the most wonderful thing that you are doing in the world, there is probably some loss somewhere in the mix. And so leaving room for that, I think is really important because if you start to feel that the sadness or the loss means this is bad or this is wrong or shouldn't be doing this or blaming your partner for it, that's when it's hard to keep moving forward. And of course, pay attention to your intuition if you are feeling like my intuition is saying don't go forward, but knowing that sadness can be part of it. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the journey you're going on or the way that you're growing or expanding. I think that's such an important point. We make so many binaries in our culture. And one of the binaries we make is like good feelings and bad feelings. We want more of the good feelings and we're really scared of what we call the bad feelings. And so sadness, grief, loss, we associate with bad feelings. And I love what you're saying, which is that all the feelings, they're just feelings. And each of those emotions is a teacher. Each of those emotions can take us more deeply into ourselves, more deeply into connection with our partner. And so just being honest and real about the sadness and the grief as part of it, there's so much 
sadness and grief in the whole journey of falling in love, right? Because when I choose you, I am not choosing all of these other paths. As I deepen into this, I'm surrendering all of those lives that I'm now not going to live. And if we can't be real about that, it gets sequestered off, it gets shut down, it gets put away. And that's the stuff that becomes dangerous and problematic. So I love your invitation to naming some of the sadness and some of the loss in what I used to know and what I'm stepping into. Todd and I grew up in different faiths. Todd grew up in a conservative Jewish home and I grew up in a Christian home. Todd was basically the first Jewish person I met. And so in falling in love with him, I was tasked with learning about a faith that I knew little to nothing about. Mm. And we had to make choices along the way of like, will I stay Christian? Will I convert to Judaism? And I did convert to Judaism. And in part, that was a choice that was informed by the family I grew up. So I grew up in a divorced, blended family. My mom and I had different last names. As in every blended family, there are sort of these lines and subgroups. And Todd was clear that if and when we had children, he would want to raise children Jewish. He could not imagine a world in which he was raising children who were Christian. So then my choice would be to be the Christian person in a home of Jewish people or to become Jewish. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to be the only Christian person in my home. Plus, I'm kind of nerdy. So I'm like, I get to learn, like learn Hebrew, <laughs> learn traditions. Like I was like, okay, let me add it. It was really, it was more exciting than frightening. But I'm fully aware that would have been a different journey if I had a family of origin that would have put their foot down or would have been threatened to cut off or some of those kinds of things. So it was a decision that was, for sure, there are ways in which I had the wind at my back around that decision-making process. Yeah, it's such a big story. I think so many people make decisions like that, and it's not talked about. You saying it's also about family and connection. It is, I imagine, in some ways about faith, but also about what are the cultural traditions of your family that you all are going to do as a family and how are you joining in those and being a part of those and how does your religious tradition and practice tie into what you all wanted to build as a family. Joining a synagogue, getting to know that community, getting to know the rituals and the holidays, I was just like, yes, I love the food and the music and the traditions. It was very easy to fall in love with that and then to know that we would be exploring those and growing in those together, certainly. I lost in that way a privileged identity. Within every cultural difference, there is a privileged identity and a marginalized identity or multiple marginalized identities. And religion is one of those ones where you can move between identity variables. And so I was moving from identifying as Christian, which is the privileged identity, certainly in this context, and selecting, moving into a more marginalized identity. I think that's important. Like whenever we're talking about cultural difference, I think it's really important that we name that in our world, we have a way of turning just about every difference into <laughs> a power difference, right? Mm -hmm. The role of identity and the shift in terms of how people might see you in the world or treat you in the world or 
things that you might experience and losses of privilege. I think that's really important for people to think about in terms of all sorts of cultural differences with marriage and relationships. And I think it's useful for people to understand and think about how does my partner, especially if they're from a different identity group, especially if they're from a group that has been marginalized, like how do they see and operate in the world? How will our children navigate the world? Even if you aren't changing or transitioning, how do you become an ally? How do you understand the privilege that you hold that your family may not hold in the same way? And then, yeah, if you are making a transition like that, how do you acknowledge like, wow, I am losing a level of privilege that I enjoyed before and I can acknowledge and name that and still be grateful for the community that I'm gaining and the understanding and the insight that I'm gaining with this transition. I'm glad that you are putting a point on when there are differences that are going to endure a racial difference, a socioeconomic difference. Like when we marry or when we partner with somebody, we are partnering with another family system. And there's a whole journey of getting to know that family system. And I am comfortable being very clear that the partner who occupies more privileged identities, there really is a responsibility to learn and understand your partner who occupies more marginalized identities, to learn and understand their family system, their family struggles, perhaps hesitancy around getting to know you, around like opening the door and weaving you into the fold. And so often when that happens, there's a risk of bristling or defensiveness or judgment. And so I think that especially when there is a clear, privileged, marginalized difference for a couple, I want to really invite the more privileged partner to just be curious. Just learn your partner's stories, your partner's family stories, and to do your own, right? To like not leave it all on your partner to explain and kind of get you up to speed that there's a responsibility, I think, also to be doing reading and listening and learning and understanding on your own as part of what it means to love you, part of what it means to know you, part of what it means to get to know your family is understanding all of the aspects of them, including their experiences of marginalization, their experiences of culture that are different than yours. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think especially related to race, people often shy away from those conversations. They feel uncomfortable. You don't want to talk about it. And it's so important to talk about. It's so important not to leave racial differences as this sort of unspoken thing, because there's going to be a gap in alignment around experience. There's going to be experiences that a partner of color has that they may not tell you if you all don't talk about race or ethnicity and you don't talk about discrimination and you don't talk about some of these things. And so I think it's an important opportunity to do something different than what we see in the larger society. Things are shifting, which is great, but to really have honest conversations. And it's also going to be important if you decide to have children, right? Because kids can see the differences between people and see how people are treated differently. And again, if you don't talk to your kids about these differences, they're just going to get a whole bunch of ideas from people at places that you may not agree with. And so being courageous, having those hard conversations, I think it's sort of this opportunity to talk about things that are often unspoken when we share race and ethnicity and find important connections and understand deeply how somebody navigates the world, what their experience of the world is. Mm, absolutely. Especially if we're talking about a difference between a couple where one is a person of color and the other person is white. Part of the experience of being white 
is very few of us grow up having any clue how to talk about race, how to talk about whiteness, how to understand the impact of whiteness. And it really is incumbent upon a white partner who is loving a partner of color to take that opportunity and take that responsibility to do their own learning and growing. Because you're right, like what will happen then is your partner of color will not talk to you, will not say, hey, when you said that at dinner last night, it did not land well. Or, hey, I had a really painful experience at work today and I want to debrief it with you. Like that is what's so beautiful about intimate partnership is we can take hard things that happen out there and we can bring them home and the relationship can be a space where we're heard and validated and witnessed. But if a partner of color does not feel like their white partner can get it or will get it and that the reaction will be an eye roll or that wasn't a big deal or it probably wasn't about race, then the partner of color is going to go quiet. Yeah. And the relationship will be deprived of that intimacy opportunity. And instead, a little brick will be put in between because it's not been said, it's not been processed together. Oh my gosh. Okay. We have covered so much ground with this question. And I feel like we have given this listener some tools, some perspectives. The big picture here is just a really gentle invitation to have the conversations, even if you feel your throat tightening up a little bit, even if you feel a little blushy, even if you're not sure where it's going to go, but just to begin to have these conversations. And I love the idea of couples triangulating in something, an article, a podcast episode like this one, like to watch a movie together about my faith or your faith or my race or your race, and to kind of triangulate in something that can be a conversation starter. And then I can ask, what stood out to you as you watched that? What comes up for you? What are some of the experiences you've had? The other thing we didn't mention is this idea of dynamic sizing, right? Mm -hmm. When we've got a cultural difference, we get to ask, like, is this a me versus you thing? Is this a Jewish versus Christian thing? Is this a black versus white thing? Is this a my family versus your family thing? That's the idea of dynamic sizing, right? What's the frame around this? And I don't think we can ever know with 100% certainty, right. whether it's me versus you, but just the conversation, just the teasing it apart is so intimacy promoting. Yeah. Knowing when to generalize and knowing when to individualize and Asking the question like, huh, my family does it this way. Is it all Christian families do it this way? Or is it that my particular family that happens to be Christian does it this way? And your family does it that way. And is it regional? Is it national? There's so many things that pour into us that direct how we engage, what we think is proper and improper and boundaries and all of these things. And all of this is an opportunity to move out of I'm right, you're wrong. This is the way to do it. That's not the way to do it. It's sort of like where we started this conversation and into, huh, why do I do it that way? Hmm, why do you do it that way? Into this curiosity of self and other. And then like, how do we want to do it? This is how my family do it. What did I like about that? What did I not like so much about that? What about you? What did you love about how your family do it? What did you not like about it? And then what do we want to take from those traditions and do together? There's so much opportunity in that creative, curious space. 
Well, Ashlyn and Charlotte, thank you so much for sending this question. And I think it was a really good question and a rich conversation. And thank you, Dr. Adia, for unpacking it with me and exploring it with me. I really appreciate it so much. Tell us where people can learn more about what you're up to and how people can keep in touch with you, because I'm sure people are going to want to learn more. Yeah, so... I have a website, which is dradiagooden.com, and it's just dr, and then adiagooden.com. And then I'm on Instagram, at dradiagooden, and also on Facebook. So those are probably the best ways to connect with me and learn about what I'm up to. And thank you again for having me. This has been such a fun and rich conversation. Thank you, Dr. Adia. Take care. You too. Thank you again to Dr. Adia for joining me on this episode. I'm so grateful for this listener question, which gave us an opportunity to discuss all kinds of cultural differences within a couple and how to navigate the challenges and lean into the delights that come with a love that bridges difference. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.